0: made it to the end and after today we'll have accomplished uh, the whole bible isn't that awesome i can't believe it 2020 wasn't a total disaster this is great now some have wondered um, you know is covid the end of the world you know because this is what revelation is about the end times Uh, i've even been asked if if the vaccine the vaccine uh, is the mark of the beast that we see in revelation 13 i've been asked that i'll cover that today um, I think it's interesting why people try to predict the end of the world. You know, I don't know why they do that, because it just produces a lot of fear, doesn't, doesn't it? I mean, can you go back to 1999, when we were approaching Y2K, how afraid everybody was? Do you remember that? I mean, they were stocking, that was the first toilet paper shortage, okay? <laughs> you know, people put, you know wood stoves in their basements, and just all kinds of crazy things. It just produces fear. But here's what we know. Jesus said, concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels, not even the Son, only the Father. So when's the end of the world? That's God's business. That's God's business. But will it happen? Absolutely. And I'm here to share with you Revelation, because the book of Revelation, which gives us the details of how that's going to happen. It starts in Revelation 1.1. 1, 1. The very first verse, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Now, John is one of the twelve disciples that lived to a very ripe old age. That's why I like to call him Grandpa John, right? When we cover 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he's Grandpa John. And an angel, which means messenger, that's all angel means, means messenger, he revealed to John what's going to happen in the end times. It was a message from Jesus Christ. If you have one of those red-letter Bibles when Jesus speaks, it's in red letters in your Bible. You'll see that there's a lot of red letters in Revelation. Okay, Jesus is, is speaking. And we call it Revelation, which is kind of interesting because that really shouldn't be the name of the book. The Greek word... That's translated in this very first verse, though, Revelation. The Greek word is a word we're familiar with. It's apocalypsis. So that means we translated apocalypsis, revelation, but really it should be translated what it is, right? Apocalypse. We're all familiar with that word, aren't we? What do you think of when you hear the word apocalypse? <laughs> <laughs> World War III? <laughs> Mass destruction? You know? You watch too many movies, folks, okay? <laughs> Apocalypse doesn't mean that at all, all right? And it certainly doesn't mean a one-eyed monster, okay? It's not Cyclops, (laughs) all right? Apocalypse is not even a scary word. You know what apocalypse means? It means to disclose the truth. When you sell a house, you fill out a disclosure statement. You fill out an apocalypse, all right? And you give a revelation to the new buyer. And if you lie in the disclosure statement, the inspector probably will find out right some of you are familiar with that experience the book of revelation is not the only book that talks about the end times in the bible we have other places in daniel 7 through 12 in jeremiah 30 in matthew 24 and 25 in mark all the gospels mark 13 luke 21 verses 2 thessalonians 1 and 2 corinthians they all talk about it and when you put them all together when you look at all those passages It's not overly complicated. I understand sometimes those symbols can get a little confusing, but it's not overly complicated, and I want you to see that today. More than anything, I feel like that's one of the gifts that God has given me as the teacher of the Word of God is to be able to take a lot of information, and trust me, there was a lot of information floating around in my head this week. All right, I did a lot of reading and a lot of studying, and to put it all together and to condense it down and be able to give it to you so you can understand and not get scared or, or confused or um, lose interest, um, I want you to understand it. That's my goal. And um, there's, there's going to be some of you that may have looked into Revelation, you may have studied it for yourself, and you may have even heard something before, and you might disagree with what I'm about to say. I'm okay with that. Let's sit down. Let's look at the Word and see what the Word says. But I think the challenge for some people I'm not saying it's you, but the challenge for some people is to unlearn what you probably learned through television, the movies, or some fictional books, or even some false teachers that stand in the pulpit and tell you something that's not true. But you see, it's hard to unlearn a lie when you believe that lie for many years. It really is. And really, the only way to do that, I think, is to dwell on the truth. And we have the truth. We have the Holy Scriptures Every, all scripture, right, Paul told Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for four things, right? Teaching and rebuking, and this is the one that's important, correcting. Correcting those false beliefs, those misunderstandings. And training you so you can be equipped for every good work. That's the word of God. That's the truth. The truths are really important, isn't it? Say amen if the truth is important to you. That's right. And I want you to be able to grasp everything that's going to happen in the end And I want you to know that you don't need to be afraid about anything when you're a believer in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Because revelation is not bad news for the believer. It's great news. It's amazing news. And actually, it's an answer to the Lord's prayer. If you know how the Lord taught his disciples to pray, it's an answer to prayer. He said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what we're talking about. That's why I called this Thy kingdom come. Revelation tells us about God's kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven. Now, when we look at the Word of God, when we look at Revelation specifically, there are many who are tempted to interpret it allegorically. Now, you heard Carrie say, I'm a math guy, so I'm not real good with English. I ain't so good at it, okay? But I I did do some reading, and and I do understand the difference between interpreting something literally and allegorically. The most famous allegory probably of all time is, maybe you know it, Pilgrim's Progress. Published way back in 1678, written by John Bunyan. It's a fictitious story uh, uh, representing or referring to spiritual realities. That's an allegory, if you will. When you read an allegory, you have to try to figure out what is the... The, the spiritual, or what is the meaning behind the story, the characters, the places, and all of that? Well, here's the problem. If everyone interprets Revelation allegorically, we're never going to agree on anything, right? There's always going to be a different spiritual meaning for this symbol and that symbol and so on and so forth. So you've got to interpret it literally the way it was intended, and it does flow nicely. It fits together like a nice puzzle. When you understand, and I'm going to explain that all to you, today. Now, John did use a lot of symbols, right? There's a lot of symbols, and there's bulls, and there's beasts, and there's angels, and trumpets, and all kinds of things, and they, they can't have a bunch of different meanings, and they don't. They, they, there is a little understanding of what we can under, grasp there, but the symbols do make it a little bit challenging. I do admit that, and, um, but I think they were important and necessary because we are 2,000 years later And John never heard of a nuclear weapon, a biological weapon, cryptocurrency. He never heard of those things, so he used symbols. All of those things may come into play when the tribulation begins. So John used symbols. Do you need to understand all of those symbols? Will there be a test in heaven when you get there? What's the horn mean? (laughs) No. No worries on that. But you should know the timeline. And you should know what your role is in all of this. Would you like to know that? All right, let's get into Revelation. I would like to walk you through it. I can't. I have to literally run through this thing. It is, there's so much here. And I know some of you are going to get to the end. Oh, man, you didn't talk about this. Well, I'm, you know, let's talk on Wednesday. That's the study, Bible study Wednesday. We're going to go answer a bunch of questions you might have on Revelation or anything else you'd like to talk about. But let's look at, All the different, the main things in in Revelation, if you will. And I'll set you up with a nice timeline of what's going to happen in the end. First of all, what number shows up all the time in Revelation? Seven, right? And seven means, in the Bible, numbers have meanings. Seven means completion, right? If you go back and read the book of Genesis, or if you come to Bible study on Sunday mornings with Scott at 945, the group, they're going through the book of Genesis. In Genesis, you see that it took how many days for God to, to create the heavens and the earth. Seven, right? Seven. And it's kind of neat because it follows along with how Revelation is definitely laid out. In Revelations 1 through 3, the first three chapters, there are seven stars and there are seven lampstands. We don't need to guess what those symbols represent because John is told the seven stars are the seven angels and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And how fitting is that, that the church is a lampstand? Are we not called by Jesus to be the light of the world? We are to be a beacon in this community, right? A beacon of light, life of purpose. Fits nicely. And when uh, John reads these, um, or gets this revelation, these seven letters, if you read the first three chapters of Revelation, you'll see there's seven letters. Really, it's not a letter, it's more of a postcard. I mean, they're just short to the point. There are seven churches. And interestingly, these churches don't exist anymore today but I would say with the exception of the last one. And the reason is, is because those seven churches more or less represent an era of history of the churches. We are in the last era. We are in the era of the Laodicean church. The church in Laodicea was described as a lukewarm church. And if you've ever been out on a hot summer day and wanted to get a drink of water and it was lukewarm, what do you do? You spit it out of your mouth, right? Because it's gross. You want it to be cold water, right? And on a cold day, you want hot coffee or tea or something, right? And that's what God says in this passage right here to the, to the church. I don't want you to be hot. I don't, want you to be, or I, I don't want you to be lukewarm. I want you to be hot or cold. But because you're lukewarm, I spit you out of your mouth. What does God want from the church, from the body of Christ? What does he want from us? He says it right in that same passage, Revelation 3, 20. I'll bring it up on the screen for you. Jesus uh, says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's good to have sound, right, sometimes? If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is nice symbolism because when you eat with someone, it's a closeness, isn't it? There's an intimacy when you share a meal with someone. That's why Paul said to the Corinthian, Corinthian church, when they were um, living in sin and and, and just pretending like all they were doing was okay. He says, don't even eat with a brother that's doing that. Don't get close with them. But here we are today in an era where many churches and many Christians are lukewarm. I mean, we live in an area that's surrounded by wealth. We don't think it all the time because we look at our bank accounts and we look at what's going on and we don't think that we're wealthy. But when we compare ourselves to the rest of the world, we are very wealthy. The Western churches are very wealthy, surrounded by wealth. But you know what Jesus said? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. We are a very wealthy church. But you know what? I don't see Life of Purpose Church as that lukewarm church. I see us as that remnant church, the remnant, the churches that are going to be the light of the world that are going to be the salt of the earth, that have a mission um, uh, um, sent by God. Our goal here, our purpose here, we want to help you get closer to Him. We want to help you understand the Bible. We want you to love one another. Right? That's what God has called us to do. And we are in these last days. These last days, this Laodicean church period. We get to chapters 4 and 5. If you ever want to know what worship is like in heaven... Read chapters 4 and 5. Read Isaiah 6. These are glimpses of what worship is like. I love when we come together and we sing a few songs on Sunday morning. I love it that we pick out songs that fit the message. Revelation song, obviously, intended for the book of Revelation. Very fitting today. Uh, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's what the angels are singing to an audience of one in heaven. God is the audience. And we sing to Him. We worship Him. And know this. This is wonderful. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I think this is a revelation in itself. When you sing to the Lord, you are joining the angels in heaven. Wherever you are, you don't have to come to church on Sunday morning. Whenever you sing to the Lord and worship Him, you are joining the angels in heaven. How wonderful is that? Sometimes when I sing... Sometimes I stop and I just listen to you. Because it's like heaven to me. It's it's Christians singing together, praising God. It's just like joining the angels in heaven. John writes in Revelation 4.1, After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard speaking to me, and I underline this part, like a trumpet. said, come up here and we'll show you What must take place after this? So here comes the unfolding of the end times. It unfolds, it begins with a trumpet. Trumpet's important because last week in 1 Thessalonians, we heard about that trumpet, right? What does the trumpet in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 announce? We look at the screen, it says, "Um, For the Lord himself, Jesus, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet The trumpet announces what we call the rapture. The rapture is the the catching up, the, the people of Christ, the believers in Christ are caught up. And it takes place before the tribulation. The rapture is when believers in Jesus are caught up with the Lord, much like Elijah was. Remember, Elijah was caught up, didn't experience death, he was caught up to be with the Lord. They don't experience death on earth, just like that. Snap of a finger. That wasn't very good. Got to be a better snapper. There we go. The snap, you moms know how to snap your finger. I am on the phone, young man. Just like that, the snap of a finger, the, the um, believers in Jesus Christ are raptured. And someone asked me um, this week, what about all those that died, right, Prior? like in the Old Testament. What about about them? Will they be raptured as well? How are they saved? Paul tells us in Romans, the first chapter, quoting Habakkuk, the righteous live by faith. That's right. The righteous live by faith. They too will be raptured because Abraham was justified by faith. We move on to now chapters 6-18. through Big chunk of Revelation, folks is just seven years of time describing the tribulation. Chapter 6 all the way to chapter 18 is all about the seven years of tribulation when the poo really hits the fan, folks. All right? It's not pretty. Some might say uh, the Holocaust is the worst time in human history. Well, I tell you, it doesn't compare to what's going to happen in those seven years. And rest again, rest assured, if you're a believer in Christ, you're already up there with the Lord. You don't have to experience this um, terrible time on earth. In the tribulation, there are seven seals, seven trumpets, seven angels, seven plagues, seven bowls of wrath, four horsemen, three angels, two beasts, but no partridge in a pear tree. (laughs) Lots of symbols, right? And you might have noticed that the seven things are always revealed in a six-in-one pattern, right? There's six seals, and then later on, the seven. There's six trumpets and then later on the seventh. There's six bulls, and then finally the seventh, which takes us to chapter seven. Two groups of people lived in the. Uh, uh, two groups of people will be saved in the tribulation. So in that tribulation period of the seven years, the church has been raptured, but there will be people who will be saved in that time frame. One group is 144,000 people exactly, from the tribes of Israel. Jewish people 144,000 will be saved. So the next time a Jehovah's witness comes to your door to tell you about whatever they're going to tell you, they believe they are from that tribe of or from that that number of 144,000. So ask them when they tell you they're a Jehovah's witness, say, "What tribe are you from?" Hopefully their eyes will be open to, wait a minute, what are you talking about? And they'll see the truth of the Word of God, and they'll be set free from um, believing some of the lies that they um, believe. The second group of people is an innumerable amount that show up, uh, that that are saved, and they are from every nation. I'm going to show you in Scripture, Revelation 7-9. John says, after this, I looked, behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And then verse 14, he says to him, Sir, you know, I said to him, Sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, for they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So the Lamb, they, they, they believed in Jesus Christ. We know that the Lamb of God. And by the way, if, if you come back next Sunday, um, our youth are presenting the story of the Lamb uh, from beginning to Jesus Christ in a play. And uh, that will be our service next week. So that is really, I'm looking forward to that, the story of the Lamb. Well, in Revelation 11, we see that there are two witnesses that will be witnessing and, and helping these multitudes come to faith in Jesus Christ. And those two witnesses are significant. And I believe in this time will be the greatest revival that the world has ever experienced, by the way. Um, those two witnesses, I think you're familiar with. I've shared them with you before in the past. Revelation eleven 6. Let's see if you know who the two witnesses are. They have power to shut the sky so no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And those two witnesses sound a lot like who? Moses and Elijah. That's right. Moses and Elijah. For the first three and a half years of the tribulation, these two witnesses will present the word of God, the truth, Many, many, an innumerable amount will come to faith in Jesus Christ. But then in verse 7, we see that after three and a half years, the very midpoint of the tribulation, halfway through, they will finish their testimony and a beast will arise from the bottomless pit, make war with them, conquer them, and kill them. And there's great detail about what happens. Three and a half days, their bodies lay in the street, right where Jesus was crucified, Those who refuse to believe in Jesus will actually celebrate their deaths, but after three and a half days, they will be resurrected to life. God will raise them to life right in view of their enemies. Then we move on to chapter 12. I told you, we've got to run through this thing. All right, There's a lot to it. But in chapter 12, we have a flashback from the beginning of time, really, when Satan and his followers basically rejected God, their pride, right? Satan wanted the angels in heaven to worship him, not God. And they were banished from heaven because of their pride. And there's this cosmic conflict that's been going on between good and evil, between Satan and his demons and the angels. And it specifically shows in this chapter how Satan has been trying to kill Jesus, the coming Messiah, from the very beginning. Take take it to the very first time we hear of the Messiah. Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 3.15, after the serpent deceived Adam and Eve, right? We know this maybe from our Sunday school days. And if not, you're going to learn about it in that play next week. We're going to talk about that. We'll see that. Verse 15 of Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is God talking to the serpent, Satan. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise your his heel. Think about the Old Testament and all the times that Satan has tried to kill the coming Messiah. I mean, think about Esau, who tried to kill Jacob. Think about Saul, who tried to kill David. How Judas betrayed Jesus, and so he was then crucified, of which the devil thought he won, but then Jesus was resurrected. Satan's been trying to get rid of the Messiah since the beginning. And he does not succeed. Revelation 13. The first and second beast. What number does the beast have? We know this number, we think of it as a demonic number, right? Six, 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 right? Um, I forget which, I think it's my insurance card or something like that. Ends with six, six, six. I hate saying that on the phone. What's your insurance card number? Blah, blah, Six, six, six. I always try to break it up into two, you know, five, six, and then I big, big pause, six, six, you know? That's the number, you know, that we're all probably familiar with that represents the beast, 666. But the beast will give a mark to his followers, to those who worship him, on the right hand or the forehead. In the last half of the tribulation, people will get that mark, who follow and worship the beast, right? Someone had asked me, do you think the vaccine will be the mark of the beast? And my answer to that is no, because I'm still here, (laughs) The rapture didn't happen yet, and you're still here. So, no, it isn't, unless in the next you know, few months before the vaccine comes. But then, even then, the timing doesn't work, because it's happening in the last half of the tribulation. The mark of the beast will allow people to buy and sell during the tribulation, which tells me that believers, true believers, will probably starve to death, be martyred, if you will, before they will take the mark of the beast. Jesus did say, you must deny yourself pick up your cross, and follow me, didn't he? So there is a sacrifice when you become a believer. I know we don't always see that in America, but there are great sacrifices. There are people who are dying for their faith in Christ, even today. This beast that we see in Revelation has other names, like the lawless one, Paul calls them, the Antichrist, Daniel says, the little horn. You've heard some of these names before, representing the Antichrist. He comes at the beginning of the tribulation when the world is in turmoil, really political turmoil, and he comes with a peace plan, a world peace plan. You'll see that in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. So the first three and a half years of tribulation, you have this person who's come into power promising this world peace plan. The devil masquerades as an angel of light, doesn't he? So it's not surprising that he's doing this. At this midway point, the Antichrist will break this covenant and will will show his true colors in what Jesus and Daniel call the abomination of desolation. When you read about that in Scripture, the abomination of desolation, that's the midway point in the tribulation in which the Antichrist will put up in the temple an image of himself And call on the whole world to worship him. That's the abomination of desolation. And then the next three and a half years are terrible, right? That's the worst part of the tribulation. You will say, What the hail in Revelation 16? And I didn't just swear, I said, What the hail, because there will be 100 pound hailstones dropping from the sky. We had a small hailstorm a couple years ago, and we had to get a new roof in this place. Imagine 100-pound hailstones falling from the earth. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. See what I did there? It gets bad, folks. All right? The seventh bowl is poured out, and then it all leads up to the final battle, the end of the tribulation. It's called Armageddon, right? What do you think of when when you hear Armageddon? Don't say Bruce Willis. (laughs) I understand it was a blockbuster movie. But the true Armageddon, the real Armageddon, is a valley in northern Israel. Many ancient battles took place in the valley of Armageddon. And that's where the final battle will take place. And it ends the tribulation. Who will defeat the Antichrist? Jesus and his army. I wanted to read it to you because I could never do it justice by paraphrasing it. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. John says, I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes his war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has name written, and that name is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen? Amen? The Lord wins. That's the end of the tribulation. Revelation 20, you see what happens to the devil. He's put into prison for a thousand years. During that thousand year period called the millennial, right? Jesus will, or the millennium, we know that word, Jesus will reign on earth. Thy kingdom come, right? Thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus will reign. There will be world peace for a thousand years. At the end of this thousand years, the devil will be released for one short period of time, temporarily. He will deceive some, but he will be quickly defeated, put in the lake of fire forever. And then the great white throne judgment is not for believers, but for believer, or for non believers. So if you read Revelation twenty and you see a judgment in there, no, that's just for non believers, those who didn't put their faith in Jesus. And then the last two chapters of Revelation, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, before I tell you how wonderful and beautiful they are, I just want to recap what I just told you. So here's my quick recap. You have the rapture of the church to start off the end times. The church is gone with the Lord. The Antichrist, the false prophet, gained world power to begin the seven-year tribulation. During the tribulation, a revival happens because of the two witnesses. Halfway through, the two witnesses are killed and resurrected. Then the Antichrist will demand the world to worship him called the abomination of desolation. Those that do worship him will give the, given the mark of the beast on their right hand or forehead. Those who refuse and believe in Jesus will most likely be martyred for their faith. The tribulation will end with Jesus coming back with his army at the Battle of Armageddon, Satan will be bound in prison. Jesus will reign for a thousand years while the world experiences world peace. And after a thousand years, Satan is released for a short time, then put into the lake of fire forever, as well as those who rejected Jesus. The great white throne judgment is for the non-believers. And then, out of heaven will come the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21. The new Jerusalem is a city shaped like a cube shaped like a cube. A city that will radiate in beauty like you've never seen before because it's made of the rarest jewels. It's just... I don't think that we have in words what could possibly describe how beautiful this will be. It doesn't need a sun or a moon to give it light because it says the light will come from God. It doesn't need a temple To go and worship because God will be the temple. God will be present. A city of pure beauty. Amazing place. A city that has specific dimensions. And being a math guy, I had to do some math to grasp what this city will be like. I hope you like this. The dimensions are given in, in Revelation. It says there are, the cube is 12,000 stadia, a stadia of 600 feet. So when you do the math, that's 1,400 miles. So you have a cube 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles wide, and 1,400 miles high. There's also walls, which are about 200 stories high. But the cube itself is 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles. You could take this cube and put it on, just to give you perspective, about half, just over half, of the United States of America. 3.5 million square miles is the United States of America. This is 2 million square miles. That's how big this cube is. Now let's just say that everyone that goes there gets 40 acres. Because we're city folk, and we'd love 40 acres of land, wouldn't we? Who wouldn't like a back 40, right, Uh, retire on so everybody gets 40 acres you do the math you get 32 million people in heaven now you say to yourself like i did wait a minute 32 million a lot of people have lived and put their faith in jesus christ way more than 32 million so maybe you don't get that 40 acres i just promised you maybe you have to give up some of that and you get a little bit less or maybe heaven has floors stories. Maybe the first floor covers 32 million people. And if you think about it, how high does this thing go? It goes 1,400 miles high. That's 616,000 stories. And I did the math for that. That would fit 20 trillion people. Now, in case I'm seeing this all wrong, no worries. I finish with this verse, John 14, 2. The same John who wrote Revelation, wrote this gospel, and he says what Jesus told the disciples, in my Father's house are many rooms, many mansions. Jesus said to them, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Is there a room in heaven for you? Yes, there is. There certainly is. But what's your job? Believe. That's your job. Believe. That's your role in all of this. To know him and to make him known. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So believe in Jesus. And when you do, heaven awaits. And heaven, now you know, is a beautiful, beautiful place. I think Revelation doesn't really, really even touch how beautiful it would be when we see it. Do you want to spend eternity in heaven? Believe in Jesus. He's the Son of God. He died for your sins. He loves you. He wants you to have, he wants to have a personal relationship with you. As our team comes up to sing our final song, I want to encourage you just to pray and just ask God. Um, just just if you've never put your faith in God, in Jesus Christ, do it today. Put your faith in him. Believe in him. And know. Be assured. And when you do that, heaven awaits. And heaven is a beautiful, beautiful place. Amen?